Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor. Joining me in the studio today are Daniel Schaefer, our investment banking correspondent, Charlene Goff, our retail banking correspondent, and a special appearance is being made by Sally Davies, our technology reporter. This week we'll be discussing plans by Facebook to enter the financial services sector by gaining regulatory approval in Ireland to become an e-money institution. We'll also look at how investors are planning to register a protest vote against UK banks for boosting the fixed salaries of their top employees in response to the EU's new bonus cap. And finally, we'll discuss the deepening crisis at the Cooperative Bank in the UK. First now, Sally, over to you to tell us about Facebook and its plans to enter the financial services sector. Should banks be worried about this? I think in the short term, no. The scale of Facebook's ambition at this stage appears to be focusing on migrant remittances, so people from emerging markets who are working in the developed world and then want to send part of their salaries back home. I don't think banks at this stage need to be worried, but if Facebook chooses to use its platform to expand beyond remittances into perhaps loans or other forms of financial services, banks may perhaps need to sit up and take notice. And you know, we've seen a number of technology companies try to move into the financial services space. For instance, Google has got uh, Google Wallet, which hasn't really taken off. What do you think the chances are that Facebook is going to throw a lot of resources? I mean, they've got huge resources that they could deploy to try and enter this space. I mean, how seriously do you get the impression that they're taking this? My sense is that they're very interested in using the network of users that they have to provide lots of different services and that they are dipping their toes in the water here. I suspect they are likely to experiment first with remittances and then see how their users respond and then perhaps they may consider committing more substantial resources to it once they see interest. But I think the thing for Facebook is that unlike Google and Apple, both of which have managed to create software platforms for smartphones, in Google's case Android and in Apple's case iOS. Facebook haven't yet cracked the idea of a platform and being able to create a network that can then be a basis for other companies to provide services and provide value. So I think that's what their interest would be here. And this e-money licence that they would get in Ireland would allow them to offer these services across all of Europe, is that right, through the passporting? That's correct. So essentially they would be able to roll out money transfer throughout Europe. They already do have the capacity to do so throughout several states in the US and they have said previously that this is primarily in order to process payments from their app developers, but theoretically it could also be used to do remittances and money transfer. That's right, because they already process a lot of payments for social gaming and the currency used within that, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Currently, they do make some money off allowing games developers to 
ask users to make payments in games and then Facebook would take a cut of that payment. But what they appear to be moving towards is offering their own payments solution such that users could transfer money directly to one another, which is different from just taking a slice of payments that a game provider or an app developer would take from the user. What about privacy, something that is a massive concern for all of these digital giants like Facebook, and it's something that banks have long had to deal with, concerns over privacy and data protection. How will customers react to Facebook trying to move into financial services, and how do you think that will go down? I think that's a real question for them. If they were to expand into financial services more seriously beyond remittances or even If they were to roll out a remittances product, there is a question about whether customers would trust them with their money. The company has had a bit of a problem with privacy in the past, not being completely clear when they changed their privacy settings for users. Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg said in 2010 that privacy was no longer a social norm, which provoked a huge backlash and an apology. So that's something that they're going to have to deal with. And on the other side, banks have always said that the sense of trust that they cultivate with consumers is one of their key selling points. So that's something Facebook is going to have to work very hard to overcome if they are to become a serious player in the financial services sector. Particularly after all the revelations of Edward Snowden and the NSA tapping into people's data. Well, it sounds as though it is only at this stage a toe in the market, but it's not any old toe. It's a toe of a pretty big beast. In this case, Facebook with its many millions of users around the world and banks will certainly be sitting up and taking notice this morning. Thanks, Sally, very much. Thank you. Now, Investors have told the Financial Times that they're planning to register a protest vote against several UK banks, including Barclays, for boosting the fixed salaries of their top executives in response to the EU's new bonus cap. What's going on here, Daniel? Well, basically what we're seeing now is that banks in the past few months have come up with plans and told investors and in quite a lot of cases the public about their plans, how they're going to deal with these new European Union rules. The rules are really, they've come into force at the beginning of January and they've been hated basically by bankers, most investors and the UK government alike, because what they basically force banks to do is to place a cap on the amount of bonus they pay versus the salary. So it's a one-to-one cap. And if you get shareholder approval, which pretty much every bank will do, you'll get to one to two so you can pay twice the amount of your salary in bonuses. And we've seen all the UK banks really, or most of them, come out with plans now to boost fixed pay as a response to that. So they basically, in many cases, increased fixed pay by up to the same level of salary, so about 200%. And they did it by using a novel form of pay called allowances, also called role-based pay, which is basically non-pensionable fixed pay that in many cases is deferred for up to five years and either paid in cash or in shares. And the difference to salary is that it is more flexible. It can be reviewed annually, but it is still seen as fixed pay under the European Union rules. So it counts towards the fixed pay and thus increases the amount of bonuses that can be paid despite the cap. Right. And what we see now is that investors are quite... Though they dislike the rules and they think it's fair that banks should be allowed to increase fixed pay, what they dislike is that banks haven't placed 
very high discount on the overall pay that bankers get because they argue that banks need to account for the fact that there's now more certainty in pay. So if you get double the amount in salary, basically, or in fixed pay, and you get a lower bonus, then you've got a higher security and higher certainty in terms of what you're going to be paid. So investors argue that there should be a high discount, and some say of more than 25% to that. And so far, what we've seen from the likes of Barclays, Lloyds, and HSBC is more in the range between 10 and 20% discount. So it's not as much as investors would like to see. Bizarre, though, to see bankers complaining about getting a pay rise in terms of their fixed pay and complaining so bitterly about this. Just explain to us whether there is a big difference between the banks and the different ways that they've approached this problem. There was details of some of the banks in the FT this morning, Barclays, Deutsche Bank, HSBC and Lloyds. But tell us, are they all pretty much standard cookie cutter type responses or do we have a wide variety of responses? Yeah, no, they are actually quite different. I mean, it's not even that every bank gives allowances as a solution. I mean, all the UK banks are planning to give allowances as far as we know. Some of the US banks that have huge operations in London, such as Goldman Sachs, Bank of America and Citigroup are looking at allowances as well. In the case of the US banks, only the European Union based staff. But some of the continental European banks are going down a different route, partly because the labor laws there make it more difficult to give allowances. And in some cases, also, like in the case of Deutsche Bank, because the regulator is is stricter in applying the bonus cap rules. In the case of Deutsche Bank, they're boosting the salary of their co-CEOs and of other top staff as well, because BaFin, the German regulator, says you're not allowed to use allowances to sidestep the rules. Mm, So there's one difference there. And when it comes to the allowances, there are lots of differences as well in how banks approach it. For example, some banks give it mostly in shares for the top staff, at least. Which is what shareholders want. Which is what shareholders want, indeed. For instance, HSBC pays it in shares for the highest earners, and it's vesting only after five years. Barclays is another example. They first plan to pay everyone just in cash, but that has made a lot of influential investors angry. So they had to back down partly on that. And they're now giving their two top executives, the CFO and the CEO, shares as well. And the difference to HSBC in their case is they also got a five-year deferral. But unlike HSBC, they don't have a so-called cliff vesting after five years. So their executive do get the money or the shares in equal installments again, in every year. Again, 20% in year one, yeah. 20% yeah, in year two. Yeah, okay. indeed. And that, again, has made Glass-Lewis, which is an influential proxy advisor, say they are quite skeptical about that because they think they should do it in a similar way as HSBC, i.e. only pay the full amount out after the five years. Yeah. Okay. So those are really the main differences that we're seeing in terms of the structures. Yeah, but shareholders pushing back against some of these more egregious features of these allowances that are coming in. Thank you, Daniel. Now to the weak link in the British banking system. Again, the Corporative Bank last week reported full-year results, announcing a £1.3 billion loss, and also came out with some details on executive pay and clawing back some pay from previous executives. Charlene, tell us what's going on and how serious is the crisis at the Co-op Bank? 
Well, I think it's serious at both the bank and the co-op group, which will this week announce its full-year results 2013. We're expecting those on Thursday. And as you say, the co-op bank announced record losses of £1.3 billion. The co-op group's overall losses will be far, far worse. And we're hearing up to £2.5 billion, so by far the worst in the mutual's 170-year history, worse even than people had expected just a couple of weeks ago. So things are really turning sour for the group. At the same time, it's lost another key director, Lord Miners, who was brought in as the reformer by the group at the end of last year. He resigned last week in the face of fierce opposition to his proposals to shake up the group's governance. So things are getting pretty tough. For the bank, there were amid the losses some sort of encouraging signs of a recovery in the underlying business they hadn't seen any kind of outflow of customers that was all pretty stable and the revenues at the underlying business was up so there were positive signals and it also was very confident that it would be able to raise some fresh capital it's hoping to launch a rights issue shortly after easter that would see it raise an additional £400 million. And while it's at an early stage still, it was pretty confident that it would be able to do that, even if the co-op group, which has a 30% stake, does not take up its share of rights, which is considered pretty unlikely at this stage, given its own problems. And that's where the fates of the two groups are intertwined, because last year the the capital raising to save the co-op bank diluted the co-op group's stake to a minority stake, only 30%. But the fates are still intertwined because there's questions over whether the co-op group can afford to contribute Mm. its £120 million that would be its share of the £400 million the bank is trying to raise. What's your views on that? They also still owe the vast majority of the share for the last capital raising. So there's some big questions there. Yeah, they are big. And I think given the extent of the co-op group's losses and its huge debt pile that it needs to bring down, it already owes a consortium of banks £1.2 billion, which is enormous for the co-op group. It seems very unlikely that it's going to be able to stump up this extra £120 And so its stake in the bank is likely to be diluted further later this year. And that has pretty serious implications for both the group and the bank. For the bank, if the group stake falls below the crucial 20% threshold, then that would trigger a renegotiation of a number of clauses agreed between the two as part of the original recapitalisation. For instance, could the cooperative bank still use that brand if the group has less than a 20% and I think the view is probably not. So that would be a huge disruption if it came to that. Also, they worked very hard in the recapitalisation last year to enshrine their ethical values and principles in the bank. I mean, there are some people who would question those given a number of misconduct issues that have emerged. But anyway, they are there. But again, they would be renegotiated if it fell below 20%. So again, that could make it tricky for the bank to say, yes, they're cooperative and yes, they are different to any other bank. So that's all to come. But as we hear it, there is a will, particularly from the bank, to ensure that the group doesn't dilute its state that far. So it may come down a bit, but would try and remain above 20% level.
And that would require the rest of the rights being sort of absorbed by other investors. But again, we're hearing that there is appetite. I mean, this rights issue would be quite deeply discounted. So there are investors there, a number of hedge funds, for example, who would be willing to take a bit more of a share in the bank. Okay. One of the big questions, I presume, this week at the results of the co-op group will be about that rights issue by the bank and how much money it can contribute and whether the money it already owes will be paid up. And that's a key question. It definitely is. I mean, they were very confident last year that they could afford to make that contribution to the bank. They owe $333 million. They've only paid 70 The remainder of that is due this year. And they were so confident that they actually pulled the sale of their insurance business late last year, saying, oh, we don't need to sell it anymore. We can get this capital just by making some property disposals and a few other actions. But the losses are a lot worse than expected. They're under pressure to repay this debt. So at the moment, they're saying, look, we definitely don't have to put that business back on the market. They're trying to sell a couple of other businesses. But we'll see whether, you know, they have to take any kind of more radical action to raise that cash. Okay. thanks very much, Charlene. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Daniel, Charlene and Sally for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by John Byrne Murdoch. Until next time, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.